This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. In 2011, director Terrence Malick gave the world an ambitious movie that tried to explain the very meaning of good and evil. In 2019, we visit the Scottish Highlands to enjoy a classic. The film is Tree of Life. The whiskey is Glenmore and G10. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. This week we are looking at the 2011 film, The Tree of Life. Now, Brad, I have put together this list of movies for us to watch. Yeah. And I've had some people contact me about what it means that we say at the beginning of every episode, a classic movie. Yeah. Now, like a classic can have tons of different definitions. It could just be a super popular movie. That has held up over the years as something that's popular. Like maybe one day we'll review Ferris Bueller. Iron Man. Yeah. It doesn't have to be something that's critically beloved. It doesn't have to be something that's very old, in my opinion. The Tree of Life is one of those movies that from the second it hit the theaters, it was being heralded as like a masterpiece. It's a super highly regarded movie. It's really divisive. It's really artistic. I would say this is the first sort of art house movie that we've ever done. And boy, is it out there. You asked me earlier if I if I could tip my hand to you a little bit on where we want to go with this episode, and yeah. I literally said, I walked away from this movie thinking I could give it a 1 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10. I'm not really sure. And that's a... We might as well just stop here. That Yeah. yeah. All right. See you next week. Thank you for listening. Uh, this was Terrence <laughs> Malick's Tree of Life. Yeah. So I'm I'm excited to get into this because this is our first sort of venture into talking about movies that are... A capital A art movies. Yes. This is not the kind of movie that's going to make $100 million. I mean, and we're going to get into the fact it lost money when it came out. But what an ambitious movie to be released by a major studio to star Sean Penn and Brad Pitt. Major, major A-list stars. stars. And for the director to be this gutsy with what he's he's just playing with form like this movie really has very little narrative tying it together. You know, when we want to talk about scenes we liked. I don't really know that this movie has scenes. It just goes from kind of clip to clip. Honestly, it felt like an extended trailer for a movie. Yeah. Just fast clips, fast moments drawn together. But it still did tell this really overarching narrative. I never felt like the movie itself was that disjointed. Like what they were doing made sense to me. And I think for a lot of people, it doesn't make sense. And we'll get into it, but there's a very jarring shift in what happens about 20 minutes into this movie that some people are like, what am I watching right Fun now? Fun fact, it's from minute 10 to minute about 23 or 24. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's. I was very thrown off by that. <laughs> well, before we get into that, let's give some background on this movie. 2011, it was released by Terrence Malick, the director. So interestingly... I was doing some research on Terrence Malick. He's only directed five movies. Yeah, he had only, to this point, right. He had only, This was his fifth. He had only done four movies. He really burst on the scene in the 70s. He made this movie called Badlands with Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. It was a very beautiful sort of poetic movie. Not like this. It's a traditional narrative movie. Um, followed it up with this movie, Days of Heaven. He was a critical darling. And then he just decided, I'm not going to make a movie for 20 years. He went off and did other stuff. He worked in theater, just kind of took his time. Came back in 1998 with the World War II movie, The Thin Red Line, which has become really beloved by critics. But at the time it came out, it came out the same year as Saving Private Ryan. So, oh, like, wow. you know, nobody remembered it. And then he decided to wait another, what, 13 years before doing The Tree of Life. But he had been developing the idea for The Tree of Life since the 70s. So this was like almost 40 years in gestation before it came into theaters. Uh, yeah, this this film... I, I had never heard of Terrence Malick before, and seeing this, I just don't know what to do with him as yeah. a human being. 
Now, now his his previous movies were all more narrative driven than traditional. And since this one came out, he's just it's gotten more and more abstract with every movie. He's he's probably released three or four movies since this movie. Oh, really? But like they never have any plot. They're just like like one of them had Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck's just like wandering around kind of like Sean Penn. Yeah. But that's the whole movie. Yeah. And it's like I, I don't like any of his output since this movie. Okay. So uh, he's a very different filmmaker than he used to be. Yeah. I mean, and maybe we can talk about that later. So I've gone back to this a few times. My big complaint with Goodfellas didn't have enough st- story narrative thread. Yeah. This movie has just a wisp of a story <laughs> right. essence thread drawing you through. And yet after I was done with the movie, I was like, I found myself drawn in by that story. Yeah. And like I said, it's it's barely the hint of a story. So why don't we we do our Brad explains? <laughs> Brad segment. explains. Explain to us, Brad, what this movie is about. Okay, so my best summary of this movie that I could give. Actually, I'll give two separate summaries. First summary: a young boy in the fifties. Wouldn't you say the fifties? A young boy in the fifties has a machismo kind of domineering father who loves his kids, but. He he has a specific idea of what it be, means to be a man. Uh, pushes his boys into a lot of places they probably don't want to be, and he's very domineering and controlling. And now the boy is old and depressed about it. And that's your sum- that's your summary. And his mom was really nice and gracious. Interesting. So here's here's my if, that, I, if that, I could summarize my breakdown of the summary. Yeah. Wait, you said you had two summaries though. What's your so second summary? My second summary would be if you've ever read the book East of Eden. Yeah, Steinbeck. This movie I think is the most clear representation of that book that I've ever seen in my life. Interesting, because they've made a movie out of that book. Have they? Oh yeah, James I, Dean, nineteen fifty-five. Wow. Yeah. Was it called East of Eden? Yeah. Huh. So East of Eden, the book was only it was broken into like three or four books. It only focuses on the last part, but okay. anyway. Yeah, so yeah, this this movie, I think, explores the philosophical concepts brought forth in East of Eden of like, what is it, how do you become a good person? Mm. You know, one of the key uh, idea, man, I don't want to talk about it because East of Eden is such a good book, yeah. and I don't want to spoil that book. But one of the key lines in the book is that the young boy prays, Lord, don't let me be mean. Hmm. And this is like a 11 or 12 year old boy that, yeah. that he doesn't want to be a bad human being. He doesn't want to be mean to the people around him. And, and, and this movie I thought really captured the essence of the young boy struggling with the domineering nature of his father that is demanding and harsh and forces you into a certain way. And the free-spirited, gracious, loving essence of his mother. And how does he balance those two things as a young boy? Yeah. And then as a as a middle-aged man going through depression, how does he deal with the things that happen in his childhood? Sure. See, I, I see it a little bit differently. And I think that for all the jumping around in time that Malik does, he lays the, sto- the narrative out in a very linear fashion. Like, the first thing you see is... Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain as this couple, and it's probably in the 60s at this point, they get notice that one of their sons has died. And it, I was always, this is my biggest complaint yeah. with the movie. How did he die? They never say. Yeah, I don't know. And it wasn't, I can assume he wasn't like in a war because it wasn't like a military. Someone just gave them a letter that's, that's like, hey, your son's dead. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, what was he doing? Like, I, that was a minor thing that took me out of the movie, but I was like, why wasn't. Like, it would have been so much better if it was a military thing. Yeah. So they find out their son died. And Jessica Chastain goes into this period of grieving. Uh, and then we we basically cut to Sean Penn in modern day. We find out that Sean Penn is one of the other sons of this family. And he's thinking back to the loss of his brother. And in my mind, his brother really represented what it meant to, like you said, to be a good person, to, to be gracious. And he's reminiscing and thinking about the person he's become. And he's, he's, he's thinking about the grief that came to his mother when her son died. And then from there, and this is where the movie turns. Terrence Malick literally has Jessica Chastain praying to God saying like, where are you in this? Why can't I find you? And then the screen goes black and we get a, 15 minute sequence of the creation of the universe. But you don't necessarily know that it's a creation of the universe. 
Uh, you, you don't for like the first minute or two. And then I'll, you, know, you finally start seeing like lava forming and the earth forming. Like I picked up on it pretty, pretty quickly into the thing that, oh, like we're watching the course of history happen here. I don't know if everybody would pick up on that. I don't know if they would either. And that's the thing. And and so this is something that we have to kind of full disclosure right now. Like people who listen to the podcast probably know us in some capacity. Brad and I, uh, we both work in, in Christian churches. We're both Christians. I don't think you can read this movie. Even if you're a non-Christian, even if Malik is a non-Christian, you can't read this movie without an understanding of the Bible. Like, yes, it opens with a quote from the book of Job. And and Job is this character in the Bible who uh, uh, basically God allows Satan to test him to take everything away from him. And Satan thinks that Job will capitulate and, and, and deny God. Job never does. But he starts questioning, like, where are you, God? And at the end of the book of Job, God shows up in a tornado, essentially, in a right. whirlwind and puts Job in his place, essentially, and says, where were you when I made the foundations of the like, you don't understand my ways. It's a really interesting morality book in the Bible because he doesn't answer Job's question of God, where are you in my suffering? God answers that question by saying, who are you to question my ways? Right. You were not there when I formed you know, the world's in my mind and spoke it into existence. Yeah. You weren't there when I created the dove out of nothing. You, like, And he goes on this extremely lengthy, you know, treatise on yeah. I am God and you are man. Right. And and so what Malik is doing with all of the characters in this film who pray to God is he's making them out to be like Job. And he's basically saying we've all had Job moments, whether or not we're believers, where we question, like, where is God in this? If there's a God, where is God? And then he he shows God's response via the creation of the universe. And the whole thing is put into motion at the very beginning of the movie. You have Jessica Chastain's character narrating and saying there's two ways in the universe. There's the way of nature and the way of grace. And you don't quite understand what she means at first. And then the whole rest of the movie is portraying the way of nature and the way of grace. Nature is when we let things take their natural course, when we let when we let men and animals be cruel to each other and lord it over each other and violent. The way of grace is forgiveness and it's it takes effort. It's going against your natural impulses. And so when Malik cuts to this creation of the universe, it's literally a 15 minute segment where we're watching like nebula form and then single celled organisms and all this stuff. But we're slowly watching. I think God infuse the universe with the way of nature and the way of grace. And we see grace even in those early moments of the film. I, I think that reading the quote about the way of grace is, is worth it. That grace doesn't try to please itself. It accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked. Mm. It accepts insults and injuries. Nature only wants to please itself. Get others to please it too. Likes to lord it over them, to have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy when all the world is shining around it. And love is smiling through all things. Well, and when I hear that quote, I can hear Terrence Malick, the screenwriter, Reading, you know, first Corinthians 13, which is read at everyone's Christian wedding, you know, love is patient, love is kind, love and grace for Malik are the same thing, because in order to love, you have to be gracious. Yes. And I want to jump to my favorite moment in the movie right now. Do it. So, so fun fact, Brad's watching this movie a couple nights ago, (laughs) and he texts me like halfway through, like, what is this movie? Why are there dinosaurs in this movie? (laughs) So we see the creation of the universe and we see the evolution of living organisms on the earth. And then we get to dinosaurs and we see this young kind of what I perceive to be like a starving dinosaur laying on a riverbed. And then like this really powerful looking velociraptor comes up to this other dinosaur and smashes its face into the ground with its paw. And, you know, this dinosaur is about to kill this thing. And then it takes its paw off and you can tell it's kind of considering the weakness of this other dinosaur. And you get this, this really funny, playful moment where it's like, what do I do? What do I do? And then the Velociraptor runs off. And it's Malik's way of saying every living thing throughout history has the choice to give into the way of nature or to the way of grace. And when Malik finally takes us out of watching this grand cosmic thing, he plops us back down in Waco, Texas to watch this family in the 1950s 
as we see them having children and those children grow up and they see Brad Pitt as the super authoritative dad who represents the way of nature and the mom who represents the way of grace. And it's kind of like it's the story of how Sean Penn's character grew up and and the sort of battle for his soul, if that makes sense. Yeah. And you even get a you even get a direct almost direct one to one representation of the dinosaur crushing the lesser dinosaur when Brad Pitt is trying to teach his kids how to fight. Right. And he's having them punch him and he's trying to get, no, you got to punch me. And he's, and he's not hitting his children, but he's, you know, slapping the kid on the head. Like, like you need to learn how to fight to defend yourself. And and it, it is an almost visual reminder of the dinosaur choosing whether or not to kill the other dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah. So this is going to be a hard movie for us to kind of do our standard format, because usually we say, how was the direction? How was the writing? How was, you know, there there wasn't much of any of that. So if we (laughs) we do talk about the writing, I want to talk a little bit about Malik's script, because he makes all these really elaborate long notes in the script that aren't dialogue. Right. And and (laughs) you really get an idea for what he's trying to do in the script. And one thing that I found really interesting was the ending of the film. I don't know if we should even give a spoiler alert, but like basically what we have is Sean Penn in modern day uh, going on this really existential journey. And he's trying to, d- to figure out, have I lost my way? Can I get back to the way of nature, the way of grace? Um, and he's he's in a physical in the physical world. And then at the end of the movie, we see him in like this weird like astral plane where he's like walking through the desert, walking onto a riverbank. And finally kind of achieving what I perceive to be like the way of grace. Yeah. You know, he sees his mom again. He sees his brother who died again. Or um, does he find balance between the way of nature? And yeah, grace? that might be that might be it, too. But in the screenplay, the ending sequence was actually supposed to be much longer. So Malik wanted to take every the viewers all the way through the end of the universe and show the great tribulation and a new earth which is the end of the Bible, basically, in which he says the soul becomes reconciled with nature. He described the destruction of the planet, the dying of the sun, the end of the universe. And then basically it gets even crazier from there. Sean Penn is like reborn as this new creation kind of a thing. And that all got cut out in this movie. What you get is like this pretty metaphorical reuniting on like this riverbank with these angelic figures. And you kind of understand what's happened. But it's very, very clear what Malik is trying to do. Uh, and you have to be, in some ways, familiar with the Bible and Judeo-Christian history to even interpret this film. Yeah, this film has so many uh, theological underpinnings that it's really hard to separate Christianity from this film Yeah, in any way. And I, I think that Man, that would have been interesting if he had a whole other National Geographic sequence at the end of the movie. <laughs> it feels like it would have fit. Right. But for me, I I think one of the things that we, we kind of have to talk about is is the film style of this movie. Yeah. That, the, the, like the language, the film language. Yeah, the yeah. film language. And, and the thing for me, the first hour of the movie did not work for me. It was all way too fast. All the cuts from scene to scene. And and if you haven't seen this movie, I can't emphasize to you how disjointed and jarring the first hour of this movie felt. It's hard to explain this movie just in an audio format anyway. And I I feel like we're selling it right. But you're you're correct. Like, I don't feel like there are scenes in this movie as much as there are just kind of like snippets, though. Yes. But I, I feel like I have to disagree about. When they cut back from, like, the creation of the universe to Brad Pitt's family, I absolutely loved that whole sequence of the babies growing into toddlers, growing into young people, because that's how childhood is. Yeah. You know, our memories from childhood are so scattered and and not consistent, and we Mine just are, have these snippets in my mind. are perfect. <laughs> I'm sure they are, Brad. <laughs> yeah, no, I do agree, though. I mean, I have memories from when I was maybe two, three, four years old yeah. that are just... They're just kind of a vague, wispy, ethereal thing that I'm like, I think that happened. But well, and now like myself having a kid and and, you know, he's a couple years old now, but seeing the scene of like the baby's foot and Brad Pitt just playing with that. And yeah. then the kid as a toddler running around the, the kids as little kids lighting sparklers on the front. These are the things that you in your mind, you remember from childhood. And and Malik is really weaving in my mind, this really beautiful understanding of what it means to be alive and then to 
to kind of be living into that way of nature, way of grace thing that's going to come to a head as the kid gets older. Yeah. And I think, I, I think the big thing for me was, I, it's not that I didn't like certain parts of that. It, the cuts were just so fast. Now the, the, what I'm going to call the national geographic sequence yeah. or the planet earth sequence, sure. that sequence wasn't super fast. It was slow yep. And, yep. and gentle and it moved through and, and we'll talk about the music later. Oh my gosh. The music was so perfect. Oh, absolutely perfect. But the, the, the story element of it with Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain was so fast and so, it just felt like I was moving so fast. I was disjointed and, and my brain was struggling to keep up with everything. Mm-hmm. But I noticed around the hour mark when Sean Penn's child character. Yeah. When he was getting old enough to remember things. Yes. The movie slowed down, yep. and it still had that element of one scene into another into another. Yeah. But the scenes were more elongated. They stretched out a little further. There was more dialogue. And at that point is when I truly started enjoying the movie. Yeah. But that's a, it's a really cool, intentional, directorial thing that he did. Yes. Like, you can tell why he did it, even if it didn't work for you. Yeah. I want to talk about the cinematography. Actually, for a second, for people who don't, like, use these terms all the time, what would you say cinematography is? Yeah, so the cinematography is just the camera shots. Okay. The, the composition of the shots on the screen, the way it's filmed, you know, the lenses that are used, the lighting, all of that, what you see with your eye is the cinematography. Okay. So the guy who, the cinematographer for this movie is Emmanuel Lubezki, really famous cinematographer. He won the Oscar for this movie. And it really established his more recent style. So he went, he's won like four Oscars in the last like eight years, which is insane for one guy. He won cinematography for this movie. He did Gravity with Sandra Bullock. Oh, yeah. He did Birdman. And then he did The Revenant all back to back. And if you watch those movies, they all have a very similar visual style. Huh. He likes to use those extreme close ups with those sort of like curved lenses. Yep. And but it just works in this movie because yeah. so much of it is that snippet of memory thing and, and faces close to the lens and then you get into like the really more metaphorical yeah weird existential stuff one it, of, it works one of my favorite uh shots from the movie is is in the very opening scenes when jessica chastain finds out that her son died mm. and it gives kind of an overhead shot of her and it, and the shot literally spirals up and away from her as she spins to the floor yeah there was something about that that – so I've worked in the hospital as a chaplain, and I've been with a mother who just found out that her son committed suicide. Yeah. And I don't know what it was, but the way that shot was done captured her outburst of depression. Yeah. Perfectly. That like that was one of the most beautiful shots I've ever seen in any movie to capture the emotion of a mother losing her child. Absolutely. There was something about that that just it was it was perfection. What I love about this movie is that Malik gives us just like you said, just enough of a story that we know what's going on, and then he leaves the rest of it for us to figure out. And it's poetic and it's metaphorical and I mean it is challenging. And I don't like I don't think anyone walks away from this movie like, oh, I knew exactly what he was trying to say. You know, it's, he had a very clear story he wanted to tell. <laughs> and if you think of it any other way than I do, then you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to kind of put on your thinking cap a little bit and you have to say, what does this, what does this thing represent? What's he trying to say with this shot? Because one minute you're watching Sean Penn in a real office building and the next you're watching him wandering through a desert. And it's like, you know, as far as I know, uh, L.A. or New York or wherever he is, is not really that close to. This desert that they're showing. Yeah. So one thing that I wanted to point out is a video essayist took on this movie and he was talking about the recurring motif of water in this movie. And Malik, this essayist said, he likes to associate water with the way of grace. So there's a there's a scene, a little shot of a kid swimming out of like a flooded room. And then it's a metaphor for this kid being born because the next shot is like Jessica Chastain giving birth. Water is the origins of life. It represents birth. It represents being cleansed. There's shots of baptisms in this movie. And so the opposite of that with Sean Penn, when he's struggling to find the way of grace again, is to show an absence of water. Like he's walking through a desert. And when he finally finds the way of grace again, it's at the riverbanks. Right. Really interesting. And, and, you know, these aren't 
all really challenging metaphors to pick up on. But again, it's the kind of thing that you don't see in movies. Right. And so when you're confronted with a metaphor like that, it's jarring. Yeah. And I think one of the things about like art house movies is it brings along with it a stereotype or an assumption that I have to look for meaning in every little thing. And and I found myself while I was watching this movie getting annoyed because I was like, well, what does it mean when you see him wrapped up in a curtain? And what does it mean when you see the fire meeting the water? And what does it mean when – and I didn't have enough t- – and because the movie moves so quickly, I didn't have time to think through those meanings before a new metaphor was popping up in front of my face. Right. So I think something that would help you if you were watching this movie for the first time, shut your brain off. Just allow the movie to kind of flow over you and move through you and mm. and and allow the movie to pull you through and think about it afterwards. Yeah. Talk about it with the people you watched it with because while you're watching it, it can get frustrating when you're moving so quickly and you're thinking, well, that has to have an important meaning. Let's think about it for 30 minutes. You don't have time to do that. Yeah. So, that, that's something that I think with art house movies, may, just think about it later. Just let the movie stand on its own. And appreciate it for what it is, and then move through, you know, and maybe listen to a podcast like us. Yeah. That And watch video essays and learn more about it, because they do have deep meanings. This movie is one of those where, if you don't know what to look for, though, it can be super frustrating. And yet, the day after Brad watched this movie, you know, we're, we're texting each other. You know, trying to get an idea for the slate of movies that we have coming up to record. And the only movie we could talk about was The Tree of Life. Yeah. It sticks with you. Even if you don't understand it, there's something that's like visceral and it it hits you at a level of being a human that you get what he's what he's going for, even if you can't put it into words. And so, yeah, I completely agree, Brad. It, you know, if you if you have to think later, this is the perfect movie to just, you know, pull up a chair, talk about with your friends after the fact. And I think that's probably what we should do. Why don't we take a sip of some of this whiskey that we have for today as we continue to talk about the tree of life? Let's have at it. All right. So we are ready to sip some whiskey. Today we are returning to the wonderful, wonderful nation of Scotland. We are going to be going to the Scottish Highlands today to try one of the most popular of all scotches. Glen. Glenmorangie. 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 I had to look up the pronunciation because I'm like, I'm looking at it. I'm like, Glenmorangie. Glen, Glenmorangie. In a Glencairn. In a Glencairn. Yeah. And so this is their standard 10 year. This is one of the most popular scotches. So you go to your liquor store, they're going to have Glenmorangie 10. <laughs> so when we trash it, nobody will ever listen to us again. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we don't want to do super obscure whiskeys all the time. Right. You know, I want to do something that the average person. Yeah. Well, I mean, last week it. we did Maker's Mark, yeah. which is a pretty well-known. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So let's let's try some of this Glenmorangie here. Now, again, Brad and I are scotch novices. And For we, sure. We want to give you guys our honest opinion as regular guys who are trying to break into the world of scotch. So we thought, why not try with a standard? Brad, what are you getting on the nose of this one? So this one is a little bit smoother. I'm going to compare this to Monkey's Shoulder, which we reviewed a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, well, why, th- don't, why don't we start comparing with some facts about it then? Okay. So this is obviously aged 10 years. Right. Now, with scotch, scotch actually has to be aged in used barrels. Huh. Yeah. So that's why you get so much extra of that oakiness. What was it used for before? I don't know if they have a provision on... I think that's why you can age it in sherry or, Uh. you know, port. So I have no idea what they're using for their general tenure, but it is called a single malt scotch. And the word single malt actually means two different things. So single means that it came from one single distillery. It's not a blend of different scotches or different liquors. Okay. And malt means that it's all barley. So single malt, whereas Monkey Shoulder was blended malt. Ah. Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, this is a little bit more true to the source, if that makes sense. And I, I don't know this. Bob might not know this, but what would barley flavors lead you to? I don't eat a lot of barley. Like, if it's in Campbell's soup once in a while, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what barley tastes like, but... I don't know, man. What what Campbell's soup has barley in it? Like their vegetable soup has barley in it. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't really eat that eat, much Campbell's soup. Eat more soup. canned soup, sir. 
Sorry, Andy Warhol. <laughs> what are you what are you picking up on the nose, Brad? Uh I mean I'm I'm picking up that trademark peat that you would get from Scotch. Um kind of mossy feel. Yep. yep. It's not super alcoholy. No. You you don't I don't know if that's a very scientific word, but it's not very alcoholic smelling. No, like it's not giving off a ton of alcohol in the nose, which is good because it, that can be overwhelming. Yeah, there's yeah, that ethanol's not there, which is good. I'm actually getting like some some more fruity scents from this than I did on the other one. It's not as smoky up front, like I get some like apple or something on it. So I I hope it's a little more mild. I don't know what, you know, what if the nose is going to give anything away in the taste, but it seems a little lighter. And yeah. maybe like some fruit characteristics. Yeah, to more it. like a cedary than a smoked smell. Yeah, I don't know. Well, let's give it a try. Ooh, do you smell your breath afterwards? <laughs> it's even smokier on my breath than the monkey shoulder. Yes, one hundred percent. It's lighter in flavor. It's lighter in terms of like the 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 thickness of it. It's the, the viscosity. <laughs> the viscosity. <laughs> um, but it's spicier. And it is, like, burning on the way down. Yeah. I think, yeah, scotch is interesting. As we've gotten into this is our second one, it's so much different than bourbon. Yeah. And from from a general whiskey. Yeah. Like, this, man, I am really intrigued by scotch. I didn't think I would be. Yeah, it's, uh, well, so this comes from the highlands of scotch. And the highland region of scotch, of Scotland. The highland <laughs> region is the largest region in Scotland to produce scotch. Right. And so there's a variety of things that you could have. It's not like it's a really small area where you know exactly what you're getting if you buy a scotch from that region. It's all over the place. Tons of different distillers in this area. So I don't know if this is characteristic of the Highland region or if it's just, you know, an outlier. Brad, what do you think of the finish on this? The finish is great. It it kind of burns strongly right as it goes down, but that quickly faded for me. I, I think it went into a nice smooth warmth once it was down and finished. I am shocked at how much smoke this has. As soon as you swallow it. And you're right, though. It doesn't linger. It's not super bitter. Um, it warms you going down. But, man, is there some smoke to it. Yeah. And that and that's the thing. I'm a cigar novice as well. Uh -huh. I, I would assume you are. I'm not. No, I don't smoke. Okay. You've never smoked a sm cigar? No. Really? Yeah. Huh. So, yeah. So, I've smoked a few cigars in my day. And by a few, I mean maybe 10 in my okay. life. So, enough to kind of know what it's like. It, this... Going down, this literally tasted like I just took a nice drag on a big old yeah, cigar. Yeah. This cannot be good for your health. This oh, is, no. <laughs> this, is, this is very bad for you. No, definitely not. Good for the heart, though. Definitely. Okay, so overall balance, what are we thinking? It doesn't hit hard on the nose. Nope. I would say it hits hard on the back of the taste and the start of the finish, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I would say that the balance is, man, it balances out really well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just milder, except yeah. for the smoke. Yeah. So I don't know. Is that is that in like, does that indicate a really good balance or does it indicate like a, a really kind of mild, easy to drink whiskey? I don't know. Let's score it out and find out. What would you give it on the nose, Brad? I would give it a six on the nose. Yeah, I think I'd give it a five. Uh, like, like we were saying, not as as ethanol-y, if, yeah. if that's a word we can yeah. use. Uh, taste? Man, it I would give it a six. Yeah, I gave it a five on that as well. Um, just just mild. I don't I wish I had a better synonym to use. Yeah. But it's just smooth, maybe. Yeah. Mild, smooth. Inoffensive. In ooh. You yeah. know. It's just kind of there. It's there. Finish. I give it a seven. It I, packed a punch on the finish. It really packed a punch. I you know, I'm just gonna stick with it. Six. Six? Yeah. And overall balance. What do you think? I said six. Are you going six? I'm I'm going with six. This is a I think it's a well-balanced whiskey. Yeah. It's, it's a great scotch. It has that smokiness that is strong, but I don't think that it overpowers the rest of the scotch. Sure. So, Brad's at a 24. I'm at a 23, which brings us to a 23 and a half for our math majors out there. Now, this is lower than Monkey Shoulder. Yeah. Well, part of well, that was brought up by our guest host, Jen. Right. I was going to say, like technically, technically speaking... We just flip-flopped scores. Oh, so we're exactly the same. Yeah. If you had to pick this or Monkey Shoulder, what would you pick? 
Well, technically speaking, I gave the other one a 23 and this a 24. Uh-huh. But I think I'd choose Monkey Shoulder. I think I'd choose Monkey Shoulder as well. Yeah. Monkey Shoulder had a little bit of that sweetness that I like in bourbon. Yeah. Um, and it's just, even if you if you put them next to each other, the color is different. Monkey Shoulder, I think maybe the blending helped a little bit it with that. It felt a little more golden. Yeah. In the color. Yeah, for sure. All right. So that is Glenmore in G10. Brad, would you recommend? I would recommend. I'd recommend. For um, a beginner scotch? Absolutely. And that's what we need. We yep. are beginners. Yep. So it, you know, it was good for the price point. Um, what was the price point? I think it's like a like a thirty five dollar. Okay. Scotch is expensive. Period. Yeah, for yeah. sure. If you can get this for thirty five to forty dollars, like that's pretty much what you're going to pay for scotch, no matter what. Yeah, and here here's a fun thing. Bob didn't buy a full bottle of this. No, I actually bought a Glen Morangy sampler that just has little three hundred seventy five milliliter samples in it. So yes. we've got four different kinds of Glen Morangy to try over the next few weeks. Yeah, and honestly, like. That is something beautiful for you as a if you're a beginner scotch drinker, yeah. don't go buy a fifth of a scotch that you might not like. I mean, Brad and I opened up the standard Glenmorangie 10 and we both poured ourselves a nice little dram here and there's still half of the sampler or a little less than half the sampler left and we got four of those. And it was a $25 sampler. Yeah. That like that is the key to being a beginner mm-hmm. bourbon whiskey Honestly, any whatever alcohol you're interested in trying, getting yeah. to know better, look for deals like that where you can try a bunch of stuff for a cheap price yep. and get to know the product. Absolutely. All right. So that has been Glenn Morangy 10. Let's get back into talking about the tree of life. What a, this movie. <laughs> it just messes with me, man. It's so good. Just like the scotch. Yeah. Brad, there are so many directions that we could go with this film. We haven't even talked about performances because, I mean, like, are there performances in this movie? What do we think of them? I think that we should just spend the rest of the podcast singing disparate choral pieces. Like, I'll sing my own thing, you sure. sing your own thing, and that'll be a good representation of the movie. I love the uh, the vocal piece happening during the creation of the universe. Yeah. Lacrimosa. Oh, it my is, gosh. Oh, man. That's soprano. Is mm. perfection. Yeah, it's can, great. can we talk about the music in the movie Go for section? It. Go for it. The what I've called, I've dubbed the National Geographic section of the movie, <laughs> which Bob would call the creation of the universe. I, I mean, that's what's happening. So the National Geographic portion of the movie uses that. What did you, Lacrimosa? Yeah, that piece might be one of the most perfectly chosen musical pieces for a section of film that I've ever seen. Oh, it's amazing. I was sitting there and I was totally confused about why we were watching, you know, cells split and germs form and lava and the, it seemed to be the sun at one point. Yeah. And it took me a lot longer than Bob. So don't feel bad if it takes you a while to get that it was the creation of the universe. But I didn't care because I was listening to one of the most beautiful. It's incredible. Orchestral pieces ever. Well, and I don't want to be that guy either. That's like, you know, I got it way in advance. You know, when this movie came out, we were both in college. We were both in a theology program where we're like studying these texts on the daily, right? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to go see this movie. It's gotten good reviews. And I'm watching a movie that's literally dealing with the book of Job. Like, you do not see this in major Hollywood studios. And I'm not even saying necessarily like that I advocate for more movies like this. But the fact that we're getting a movie that deals with issues of existence on this level is nuts. Yeah, and not only existence, so, like, the thing I love about the movie is that it deals with very high-concept things, Mm -hmm. and yet things that every single human being has struggled with. Right. Why do bad things happen? 
Absolutely. And and that's a question that is absolutely universal. It hits at the heart of every single human being from any culture, any background. Yep. And this movie, it doesn't give you the answers per se. Yeah. But it forces the issue of this is a real thing that we all deal with. Yeah. Well, and I think that, that you see that happening throughout the course of the film in Brad Pitt's character, who is decided to give into the way of nature, yeah. right? I mean, he sits his kids down in the car and he tells them the wrong people go hungry and die. The wrong people get loved. He says the world lives by trickery. And if you want to succeed, you can't be too good. That's the lesson he's imparting to his kids. And I think we see Sean Penn going through his like existential crisis because he's embraced that notion. He feels separated from his mom and his brother, who was like the embodiment of grace. And so through the course of the movie, we watch young Sean Penn. His character's name is Jack as he grows up and he starts to kind of embody what it means to give into the way of nature. You know, he's introduced to the concept of death when one of his friends drown in a swimming pool. And after that, he starts to rebel, which is something we expect from kids. They can't process that. But he's thinking, why did this kid have to die? Where is God in this situation? You see him throwing rocks through windows. You know, eventually he gets to the point where he's so destructive that he se basically severs his relationship with his mom. And then he shoots his brother in the finger with a BB gun. And even in that moment, like we see his brother come back and forgive him for what he did, just reminding us that the way of grace is a choice and it's a choice that we're not far away. All of us can make the choice to turn towards the way of grace. So, all right, I'm going to spoil East of Eden. Do I'm, it. I'm just going to do it. So if you want to read the book, which I highly recommend, it's one of the best books I've ever read. Stop listening now and go read it, <laughs> but I'm going to spoil it. All thousand pages of it. All that. Oh my gosh. It's such a good book. <laughs> so the key element of East of Eden is can I be good? And I kind of said that earlier with yep. the young boy who says, you know, God, help me not to be mean. But the core of this book is that it talks about a passage in Genesis that includes this Hebrew word, team shell. And the, the word team shell has been translated a lot of different ways. And, and it's talking about how sin will affect humanity. All right. And so they're looking at how different Bibles translate the word in different ways. The American standard, it, it's almost like an order that you will triumph over sin. And then the King James Version almost makes it a promise, thou shalt triumph over sin. But the way they come around translating it on their own through their own, own study is thou mayest. Hmm. And, and the direct quote from the book, but the Hebrew word, the word team shall, thou mayest, that gives a choice. It might be the most important word in the world that says the way is open. And, yeah. and, and I think that's why for me, there's such a strong correlation between East of Eden yeah. and Tree of Life is that the entire movie is truly the representation of those two words, thou mayest. Yeah. Or, you know, in, in modern English, you might. You could, yeah. You can't, you could possibly triumph over sin. Yeah. And, and you know, whether you want to call it sin or the way of nature or, you know, being cruel and mean to get what you want in this world or being gracious and loving. And sometimes when you're gracious and loving, you get what you want and sometimes you don't. Yeah. You know, at the start of the movie, it's he says the way of grace will accept any injury and slight without retribution. Right. And, and that, for me, is the core of this movie, that thou mayest. One of the things that I love about what Malik is painting here is that the way of grace is a choice, but it's a consistent choice. It's not just a one time thing, because there's this there's this scene where Brad Pitt's character actually kind of has his own mini revelation. And I didn't realize it at the time, but. Brad Pitt's character is actually like directly quoting a character from the book, The Brothers Karamazov oh. by Dostoevsky. And he, he has this long kind of soliloquy where he realizes that he's fallen victim to the way of nature. And he said, I wanted to be loved because I was great. I wanted to be a big man. I am nothing. Look at the glory around us, the trees, the birds. I lived in shame. I dishonored it all. And I didn't notice the glory. And it's a really interesting little detail. And, and this video essayist on YouTube picked it up that he has this revelation. But then like one scene later, 
he's helping his son Jack pack the car and he's back to insulting him again. And he's saying like, you know, why are you standing there like a bump on a log? And the implication is he has this mini revelation. He has this moment where he kind of experiences the way of grace again, but then he lets it go. And so when Sean Penn has his big revelation at the end of the movie, it's really hopeful. But at the same time, you know that when he returns from this existential crisis he had to his normal life, he has to make that choice every single day. And I think that's such a great reminder to us as viewers of this movie that it's not just this one-time thing where we have this breakthrough. It's something that we have to allow ourselves to kind of uh, put behind us our own way of nature or our sin and every single day accept what it means to be a forgiving, gracious person, however that might mean it to you. And I don't necessarily even think Malik is a Christian or that he's advocating a Christian worldview. But what he is advocating is that in order to love and in order to be loved, you have to have some sort of sacrifice involved. You have to give up yourself in order to achieve it. I think what Malik would be saying is there is a better way. Yeah. Uh, like whether I don't think he's saying it's a Christian or Jewish or Muslim or atheist or any other way. I think what he's saying is there is a better way in the way of grace offers a betterment for all humanity. In Malik's script that he wrote, this isn't in the movie, but it's like his final note in the script. He talks about how Sean Penn kind of comes back into the real world out of this out-of-body experience. And he, he writes, All ends in peace, as music does. The last chord melts into ordinary production sound. Time has reappeared and resumed its sway. And still, the vision is not the journey. The real journey has yet to begin. Will he give himself to this new life? Does he dare? And what a final image to leave us on. Do we dare, as viewers of this movie, as the characters in this movie, do we dare embrace the way of grace over the way of nature? Bob, I feel like we've spanned the entire emotion of what movies can mean from last week to this week. Absolutely. Like moving from some like it hot, to Tree of Life. Yeah. This is heavy <laughs> stuff, man. Yeah. And that's what I love about it. And you talked at the beginning about how you could give this movie a one out of ten. Yeah. It is a weird movie. But if you understand what Malik is getting at, which is this really basic human desire to understand why are we here? How do we make meaning out of all of this? Where's God in all this? Then I don't know if there's ever been a better movie made about this subject. Can I refuse to give it a score? I don't know if we can. I think we have to we, we need to score it out because I think I walked out of this screening the first time I saw this and I gave it a seven. OK, it is incredibly shaggy at points like it's edited weird. And yet I've never seen a movie with ambition like this, except for maybe 2001. You know, and I don't know if, you, if you've seen 2001 yet, but nope. it, it deals with issues of like, what will humanity become in the future? Right. Um, Roger Ebert, when he reviewed The Tree of Life, he said that he'd never seen a movie like this except for 2001. And he said, even 2001 lacks the emotional human core that this movie has. Yeah, there was something beautiful about Brad Pitt's performance, especially mm -hmm. that I felt drawn into him. I, I yeah. really did. I, I thought he gave a phenomenal performance. Yeah. So, okay, I'm going to force you into it, Brad. And again, this movie, you're right, though. It defies being scored. Yes. Like, I hate that we have to score this movie because I really think even if you don't come from the background we do, even if you don't have the same worldview that we do, this is a must-see movie. Yes. You might walk out of it frustrated and confused and making fun of it because it's not the movie you're used to seeing. But this is like, this is a movie that sticks with you. Yes. So, Brad, if you had to give it a score, what would you give it? I am going to give it a 9 out of 10. Yeah. I came really close to giving it a 10 out of 10, but looking back on it, the beauty of the movie, I think, could have been extended if the first hour hadn't been so disjointed and jarring. Sure. I, I think that it helped the movie work the way that it did. I'm not sure if... That really threw me off. Um, but other than that, I, it's 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 a perfectly weird movie. Yeah. It's a great way to explain it. Yeah. You know, I would probably give it an eight 
for the same reasons that you had. It's I mean, it, it could have been trimmed down 20 minutes and still made as much sense as it does, whether or not it makes any sense. <laughs> um, and yet I feel weird giving it an eight because that means that I gave some like it hot a higher score. And I'm yeah. like, if I was going to tell someone to watch a movie, this is what cinema is all about. This is conveying things about what it means to be human in a way that even some like it hot doesn't do. And so, like, is some like it hot actually a better move? I hate comparing movies by score. I actually am very glad that we did some like it hot followed by Tree of Life because I would say that Tree of Life is not what movies are all about. Interesting. I would say that it can be what movies should be all about. I think that some like it hot is a perfect representation of the other side of the coin. Sure. That I would say that movies truly have I one of two purposes. Either movies are there to help you escape your reality, right. move into a different world, whether it's a fantastical world like Lord of the Rings or the Marvel Universe, or a realistic world like Some Like It Hot. It allows you to transport to a new world and see the world in a different way and just get away from your own suffering and realities. Right. And then on the other side of the coin, one of the greatest purposes of cinema and film is to make you deal with the big questions of life. Absolutely. Why are we here? Why is there suffering in the world? What What does it mean when things like the Holocaust happen? Yeah. Schindler's List is one of the greatest movies of all time for a reason. Mm. It answers deep questions about humanity. And so so I think it's, it's two sides of the coin. Yeah, agreed. Brad, would you recommend this movie? Maybe. That's such a, yeah, it's such a general question. Yeah. I would not recommend this movie. And I hate, I don't want to be that guy that's like putting down, but like if your favorite movie is like Billy Madison, like yeah. this is not the movie for you. Yes. It's just not. And I'm not saying anything about Billy Madison. I'm oh, just we saying, both like, probably love Billy Madison. It's dumb and it's funny, you yeah. know, but this is not the kind of movie you throw on after that. Right. But if you're looking for a movie that will challenge everything you know about making movies, watching movies, your own stance on what it means to be alive and and making meaning out of the universe then this is this is the movie for you i i 100 agree i would say watch it with some other people who are interested in the same things yeah because the movie would not mean as much if you didn't have good conversation afterwards absolutely so watch it with your friends that like these you know kinds of thoughts and interactions it's a phenomenal movie it really that, is i don't if i if I refused to have given it a number rating, I would have given it the word rating of phenomenal. Yeah. Guys, thank you so much for listening. As always, if you have thoughts, hit us up on Twitter at Film Whiskey or give us a call. What do you think of the Tree of Life? What does it mean to you? Let us know at 216-800-5923. Once again, that's 216-800-5923. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time.